We are in part two of our series called A Life of Worship, where we're going to be examining the book of Samuel, which includes first and second Samuel. So we're going to be in the book of first Samuel chapter two this morning. However, in our introduction and our time together, we are going to start in a very unusual passage. So keep your finger there in first Samuel chapter two and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 28. I have something that I'm going to share with you that maybe if you've been with me for uh, maybe over a decade, you've probably heard me teach on once or maybe twice. To most of you, it will be relatively new. Some of you will actually believe this and not know where you came up with it. I was first introduced to this concept by a gentleman by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse, who wrote a book called The Invisible War. Um, I would like to caution all of us, this is not gospel fact, this is a man's opinion. Therefore, I want you to sift it and examine it. If it is trustworthy and seems to be accurate according to Scripture, you receive that and chew on it. If you think it's bogus, I want you to ditch it, get rid of it. We always examine everything that comes out of anyone's mouth with a filter, and that is the filter of the Word of God. Amen? So, we have an idea here that is going to be presented to us about Ezekiel 28. And so, let's go ahead and start in verse 11. Some of us may be familiar with maybe the first couple verses. You said in your heart, I am a God, but you are not a God, you are a man. Maybe we uh, remember that phrase. Now, what's intriguing about this phrase is no one quite knows who it's talking about. Barnhouse has a theory that it is referring to Lucifer, the pinnacle of God's creation. Is it possible that it is him? Is it possible that it refers to when evil entered the universe? Is it possible that it's referring to what happened when he tried to take the throne of God? This is what we're going to examine this morning, at least at the beginning. We pick it up in verse 11, and the intriguing thing as well about this is that history doesn't have a king of Tyre or Tyre. It has a prince. So the prince has already been addressed before this. We are now going to address whoever the king is. However, they do not believe at this time there was a king. So is it possible it's referring to the leader that was behind everything? Perhaps. Let's read. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel said, and said, Son of man, take up a lament considering the king of Tyre, or Tyre, and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. 
I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you, and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. Who is that referring to? Well, obviously, there's many different opinions. It's not very clear. Barnhouse would suggest that something occurred between the verses of Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Most of us have heard of it as the gap theory, and we hear it a lot in discussions about creation, dinosaurs, discussions like that. That's not at all what he's referring to. He's referring to the fall of Satan happening between those two verses. For the first verse of the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says, Now the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. What's intriguing about that phrase, Now the earth was formless and void, is first of all, where did it come from? If God created the heavens and the earth, why did he create something that was formless and void? What would be the purpose of that? Second of all, was that part of the act of creation? Is that part of the days? The days don't start till after that. Other interesting things to think about is the phrase was formless and void is a very open Hebrew phrase. It is a phrase that can be used for things like and Lance was a pastor. What's intriguing about that is I was not always a pastor, but a process caused me to become a pastor. So just saying that something was can speak to the process by which it became. Now, the earth was, became formless and void. Uh, another Hebrew translation is and the earth was reduced to ashes and chaos. Now, what happened there? Barnhouse would suggest to you that in the beginning, when God began to create... Now, remember, the Trinity is eternal. The, eterni the, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have always been. There is no need of God for anything or anyone. God is completely self-contained. The Trinity is community. God can talk within himself. He does not need to create anything. But he chose to cause a creation to happen. And that was angelic beings. It is believed by most everyone that the angelic beings were created before we were created. So what happened with them? All we know in scripture is that at some point a rebellion was led. And things went badly. Because by the time we get to the Garden of Eden, we have a bad guy, yes? We have someone that is inhabiting this serpent and is leading Eve astray. Where did he come from? Where did evil come from? Where did sin come from? How do we answer all these things? Well, what's intriguing about this is it seems to be talking about Lucifer. Now, Lucifer, the morning star, is believed to be the highest ranking angel or the most important, most powerful, most amazing being that God ever created. But make no mistake, he is a created being. We do not have duality. We do not have two superpowers fighting it out. We have the rebellion of a creation to its creator. But think about it this way. How in the world did you ever get the idea that you could take the throne 
from the Almighty God. Couldn't you imagine that just by looking at God, you would go, eh, probably not going to happen, right? If you're smart and you are so full of wisdom, why would you not just shut it down at that point? Even if you get one third of the angels to go with you, why would you assume that? Well, it is believed that he was a cherubim. It says you're an anointed cherub, if you remember that. Now, what are cherubim? We know that they are heavenly beings. They're the ones that look kind of funky, and they're the ones that hover around the throne room of God. They're the ones closest to God. As a matter of fact, they create what is somewhat of a curtain or a shield of the glory of God. They are the direct ministers to the Trinity. We know that when God put his presence on the cover of what? The Ark of the Covenant. It was placed in a place called the Holy of Holies that was separated from the holy place by what? A curtain. What is embroidered on that curtain? Cherubim. What is on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim. Are we beginning to get the idea? In the book of Revelation, cherubim are right next to the throne. If indeed he was a cherubim and the highest, and we know he's a big deal because Michael the archangel in the New Testament would not rebuke Satan directly. Out of sheer respect and awe, he said, the Lord rebuke you. I'm not getting into it with you. If Michael the archangel, the biggest, baddest angel we have on our team is still giving him proper due respect, he's a big deal. Indeed, what did he do? What's intriguing about this passage is it seems to refer a lot to priestly functions. Why? Because the stones that are described about him are usually the stones worn by a priest. He would have what's called an ephod or an outward type robe looking thing, and it would have jewels encrusted on the front, and that was a sign that he was the high priest or the priest that was ministering before God. What does a priest do? A priest operates in the priest and prophet function by what? By giving to the people God's will and by returning back to God the praise and glory. Yeah? That would be the priest's trade, meaning what he does for a living, his merchandise. In Ezekiel's day, when a phrase like trade or merchandise is used, it's not talking about buying and selling. It's talking about what you do in your natural way of living. Now, what that means is, it's very possible, Barnhouse would say, is that Satan ran the universe on God's behalf. Lucifer would give out the commands of God that would organize the universe, that all that God had created, Lucifer was the governor over. So he would consistently give out the orders of God, and of course everything would go perfectly. His job then was, as the heavenly host, as the creation of God, cries back glory, his job is to transfer all of it 100% back to the rightful owner of that praise, which is who? God. But one day, a thought came into his heart. Maybe the thought went something like this. I'm pretty good at this. I've been running the universe since as long as I know. And you know what? Everybody seems to think I'm pretty amazing. As a matter of fact, all I do is get glory and praise day in and day out. I'm not so sure, since I'm doing a lot of the work, 
that all of it needs to go back there, why not keep a little bit for me? Hmm. Perhaps never seeing any other will but God's. Never seeing anyone challenge God would lead someone in a naive state of mind to say, I wonder if I can take him. Because think about it this way. If you've never seen a rebellion, you don't know how it's going to go. You're the first. Barnhouse would continue to say, indeed, he did take it upon his heart to begin to put his will up against God's. And he lost. God cast him down to earth, which used to look very different and reduced it to chaos. And he became the governor of a ball of chaos. That is a humiliation stance. And then God did the unthinkable. At some point, God said, I'm going to teach you a dramatic lesson because in your own backyard, I will refashion and reform the earth and I will put little dirt bags on the surface of it. They are far less than you. They're embarrassing. You are the mighty being and you would not worship me. But watch what I can do through these little critters. And he begins to fashion mankind in Satan's backyard. You go, why do you keep calling it Satan's backyard? Because when Jesus Christ was in the desert, what was the temptation? I will give you all these kingdoms if you will fall down and worship me. Why does he own anything? He's still temporarily running the show down here. Because little by little, God is pressing in on his kingdom. And at some point, he'll go, and you're done. We know that in the book of Revelation. However, as he's cast down and watches these creatures show up in his backyard, and little by little, they're worshiping and praising, we have a tremendous drama unfolding to humiliate the greatest creation of God, who turned his back and stabbed God in the back. Can you imagine why, God, why Satan hates us so much? Can you imagine why his whole goal in this life is to destroy that? Can you imagine why he would use the temptation of Eve, God's holding out on you? Because that's how he felt back in the day. He was supposed to run the universe on God's behalf and return all the glory back. And he failed. And we look at him and we shake our head as if we aren't doing the same thing every day. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. Do not take what is God's. And what is God's? Everything. Yeah? Barnhouse did one other interesting tie-in he said if you look at the qualifications in first timothy for an elder you'll notice it says do not make an elder uh, a recent convert an elder or else he will find pride in his heart and fall like satan did why because what do elders do they oversee the church 
And their job is to communicate God's will to the people and return all praise back to God. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, I know many of you were praying that was the message. It's not. That's called an intro. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 12. Here we go. Now it says, Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He'd plunge it into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, let the fat be burned up first, then take whatever you want, the servant would then answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young man was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Anybody have any idea what in the world we're talking about? No, of course you don't. Imagine you just read that on your own and you're like, What? What are you saying? Why, why do I, boiled meat? What, what do I care? What are we talking about? I would assume that all of us would blow right past that and go read something that made sense. However, if we did that, we would miss gold. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we get to study your word. And Father, make us to have hearts that return all the glory to you. Change us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, the only way to understand this passage is to go back and have a history lesson. All right? So, here's basically how it goes. And most of you know this. Some of you are catching up with us. Now, in the ancient Israelite world, God utilized animal sacrifice as a system for covering over sin. Basically, this is how it would work. If you had something that you knew you had done wrong against God, then you needed to pay for it somehow. So you'd bring up an animal that would be a, a cow, a ram, a goat, sheep. One of those, you would bring them, and there were other levels of sacrifice. You could even do them for Thanksgiving reasons or whatever. You come up before the priest who's standing at the altar that is burning. It looks like an enormous barbecue. You bring up the animal that is yours. It has to be unblemished, perfect, because God deserves the best. And then you lay your hand symbolically on the head of the animal as a symbol of this is mine. It's a transference of me. I'm not dying for my sin, but this will die. You place your hand on there, and unless it's a national issue, you as the worshiper would actually kill the animal there. You would then hand it to the priest. The priest would drain the blood because they do not eat the blood. That's a big thing in the Jewish world because the blood is God's. But God also has another portion. They then divvy up the animal, and they use it in different ways. If you look in Leviticus and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, portions of it were to be given to the priest. Why? Because priests didn't have any other way to make a living. They lived off the offerings of the people. They didn't have their own 
countries or nations. They didn't have their own other jobs. They did this for a living. So whenever you presented your sacrifice, they'd get pieces of it. Sometimes it would be the breast of this animal. Sometimes it was the shoulder portion. But there was always a portion for God. God, for whatever weird, creepy reason, likes the fat around the innards. I don't know why. Don't even ask me. I looked up all kinds of research. have no clue. And now it's the fat lining around the kidneys and the intestines and stuff like that. So when they would gut the animal, there was a fat portion. Not all the fat of the animal, that portion. And what they were supposed to do is take that meat, lay it on the altar, and it would burn up completely to ashes, and that would rise up to God. That was his part. Then the priests could have a portion, but they would normally boil the meat... For Passover reasons, all right? So hold it right there. What is Passover? Most of us know it's one of the most important Jewish holidays, and it celebrates the idea when the angel of death came through Egypt to rescue Israel from bondage by killing the firstborn of every household that did not have what on the mantle? Blood of a lamb, right? We're all getting the Jesus tie-in, Jesus' blood on the cross, yeah? That's the point. If it did not have blood, then one would die. If there was blood, the angel of death would what? Pass over that house. That is the phrase Passover. Yeah? We all tracking with that? Now, the way you prepare for Passover was that when God did that miraculous maneuver, they had to hurry and get out of Dodge. Yeah? So you do everything as if you're rushing. That's where we get the idea of unleavened bread or matzah that we take with communion. That means we don't have time to let the yeast rise, make the bread, get out of here. In the same way, they would boil the meat because it was just hurry up and cook it. It's not for taste. Let's get out of here. Now that you have that knowledge, let's read it again. And it seems totally different. Now, Eli's sons, who is Eli? He is the judge over Israel. By the time he dies, he will have led Israel for 40 years. He is the high priest running the church of God at the time. He's running the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant is. He's supposed to be a good guy. However, he is a lame duck leader. Regardless of how cool he used to be, he is not anymore. And he has allowed Israel to slide into depravity. He has allowed the church of God to become a joke and a place of dishonor. Now, Eli's sons were sons of Belial. Worthless. Why are they worthless? Because their job was to promote the worship of God and they were doing quite the opposite. They had no regard. Literally in Hebrew, that's they did not know the Lord. How embarrassing is it? that the head religious dudes of the time didn't even know God, right? Well, what happens if you're running a religious institution and you do not have a heart of worship or a heart of God? If you have no regard, regard for God, you're going to use it for your own selfish motives. What can you get from a job like that? Well, money, meat, power, women. Watch this. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, it was the practice of the priests with the people 
meaning it had fallen to this place, that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He'd plunge it into the pan or kettle, cauldron or pot, and he'd take for himself whatever the fork brought up. Is that how it was supposed to go? No. There were specific portions that were to be divvied out. They did it kind of random, kind of like, all right, let's just move on. This is boring. Stick the fork in. All right, cool, whatever. I got that one. Yay. That was it. Now, that's not a lot of respect, right? Let's keep going. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to the city where the tabernacle was called Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, who owns the fat? Even before God got his portion, the servant of the priest, that's our little lackey, would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, the worshiper, and say, give the priest some meat to roast. Why would you roast meat? Because it tastes a lot better than boiled meat. Yeah? Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat. He doesn't care about what God wants. It's gross. From you, but he will only accept raw. Why does he want raw meat? So he can cook it to taste. If the man, the worshiper said, let the fat be burned up first. No, 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 no. Let God have his first. Can you imagine you're arguing with the priest for God to be honored? How embarrassing is that? You have to fight with a religious leader to make sure God gets his. How messed up is that leadership? If the man says, let the fat be burned up first, then you can take whatever you want. The servant would say, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. You're bullying and ripping off God. This sin of the young man was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Leviticus says that if anyone eats the fat that was given to God as an offering, let him be cut off from his people. It was a specific curse. Not only do you not do that ever, you don't do that as a priest. Are we all clear on how bad things are? All right. Now we look at these people and we just shake our head. Oh, what a bunch of losers. Do you know what contempt means? It says they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. What does contempt mean? I had to go look it up. It's not a phrase I use all that much. And I thought, well, I kind of know it in context. Here's what it means. Treating with less respect than it deserves. Thus, disdaining it. All right? Now, let's turn it around on us. Is there anything of God's you are treating with less than the respect it deserves? Then we are doing what they did. Is God... Your priority. Is he your all? We need a higher view of God. Why would they allow it to fall to this degree? Because in their mind, it doesn't matter. Yeah? Why do you live the way you live? Why do you make the decisions you make knowing full well that God is real? Because it doesn't matter. That's why. We've all fallen into this, yeah? We don't do that. Oh, why would God care if it's roasted meat or boiled meat or so what? 
So what? I mean, God, what? God wants us to sing a song. I don't want to sing a song. I'm not a singer. I don't really want to do that. You know what? Why should I even bother going to church? What's the big deal? It doesn't matter. I can be a Christian if I'm in church or not in church. Or why in the world should I bother reading scripture? It's not like I'm not going to get it somehow, some way. Maybe it's on TV. Maybe it's on the radio. How about because God said he wants you to? Do you ever think about that? Oh, it doesn't matter, right? That's called contempt. And we are guilty of contempt. We need a higher view of God. Because we're not taking him seriously. Look at the next phrase. This is a great hope line. You ready? But, meaning everybody else is psycho losers, but... Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Wait, who? Oh, that's right, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year, his mother made him a little robe, and she took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. That's God's great hope. Who? The little kid. He's walking around, la, 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 and he's growing up, so he has to get new clothes. His mom brings him new little stuff. He's wearing little priestly garments. Look at me. I'm a little baby priest, right? That's the great hope. It's all pinning on a little kid. Why? Because God will always have a remnant of worship. God will never let it die out completely. God will always keep one that is his. And if the leadership won't worship appropriately, God will raise up one who will. You're going to hear that phrase over and over. So all hopes are pinned on one available little guy. Samuel. It says, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, that's Samuel's parents, saying, may the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave up to the Lord. That was what baby dedications kind of came from. Then they would go home and the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters, five more kids because she gave up her one and only son. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. God never needed your stuff. He wants your heart. And that's the one thing you won't give him. Now, Eli was very old. Okay, anytime we hear a phrase like that, what do we ask? How old is old? If God calls you old, you're old. Yeah? Now, Eli was very old. How old is he? Probably likely in his 90s, early 90s. Now, Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel. We already learned how bogus they were, bullying people, stealing from God, right? If that wasn't enough, look at the next line. Oh, and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. I'm sorry, what's that? What's the tent of meeting? The church. So what'd they do? Well, you got two choices on what this means. Either it means straight out promiscuity having sex with the women who are volunteering or, uh, well, and abusing their power, right? They're the big dogs. And these women were coming either to watch the kids for the other worshipers or they were volunteering their time or they were serving or maybe just wanting to be near the presence of God. But what were these guys doing? Taking advantage of them. Either it's that or something worse. You say, well, what could be worse than that? Ritual prostitution. 
The Canaanite religions in the area at the time all utilized female prostitutes in their worship services. And it's very possible that these two losers brought in pagan worship practices into God's house and utilized women for that purpose. Right next to God's stuff. That's your leadership. Awesome. So Eli said to his sons, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. Oh, really? If a man sins, if he misses the mark against another man, God can mediate for him. But if a man sins against the mediator, who's going to intercede for him? His sons, however, didn't listen to their father's rebuke. Oh, shocker. Uh, first of all, maybe it's because you're rebuking them and you're 90 and they're 60 and you're now trying to bring in parental discipline. Okay, you might have wanted to start a little earlier than that, right? But if you are lame dad and you're trying to play this big game of I'm going to now control my sons that they're older, that's never going to fly. You've lost all credibility. And Eli was not worthy of respect. Parents, how ought we to raise our children from the ground up? Teaching them what? That God is real. Teaching them that God matters and living lives of worship. Because if you don't worship, they're not going to worship. Because you didn't think it was a big deal. Oh, and the other reason why they didn't listen? Look at the next line. For it was the Lord's will to put them to death. That means you're done. Oh, that's how you're going to treat my house. That's how you're going to treat my stuff. That's what you're going to do with my people. No, you're not. You're done. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Where have you heard that phrase before? Jesus, Luke 2.52, the exact same phrase was used for him. Hope. Again, on the little guy. Now, a man of God, that, you, that phrase is used in the Old Testament 70 times to refer to a prophet. Now, some random no-name prophet came to Eli and said, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house, meaning Aaron, the head of all the priests, when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh, I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, meaning Levi, his ancestor, to go up to my altar, burn incense, wear an ephod in my presence. I gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. What is he saying? I gave you special privileges, made you a special people, let you hang out with me, get super close to me, and do really, really cool stuff. And this is how you treat me. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my house? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by the people of Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. And I'm not changing that. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house. So there will not be an old man in your family line and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel in your family line, there will never be an old man. Every one of you I don't cut off from my altar will be spared only to blind your eyes with tears and to grieve your heart. 
and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas? That will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. That happens in chapter 4. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and my mind. And I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before my anointed one always. That is fulfilled later on as a prophecy underneath King Solomon. King Solomon removes one priestly line, Abiathar, and puts in a new guy, Zadok. Zadok's family line runs the priesthood for the next 800 years. How does that work? Remember, Moses' brother Aaron is the head of all priests. Aaron had multiple sons. It's always been tracking through one son. God just shifted to the other son. So it's still honoring his promise, but rebuking the line that didn't take him seriously. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a crust of bread and plead, appoint me to a priestly office so I can have food to eat. You're going to steal my stuff, huh? You're going to, what, see all that meat? Oh, got to be me, me, me. It's all about you, right? You're going to gorge yourself on my food. No, you're going to be begging for a crust of bread. You're done. What are you putting before God? Huh? What, what's the stuff that pours into your mind? Where's your mind go? Where's your natural place you want to rest? How are you spending your money? On what? How are you spending your time? Where? Because you want to know what you worship. There you go. So what is it? What is taking God's priority? Who's sitting in his chair? How'd you get in his throne? If you're putting your children before God, you're wrong. Oh, that's so offensive. Uh, how could you say that? God said we need to take care of them. I'm their primary caregiver and everything. They're number two. God's number one. Oh, is it your work? Well, you know, God set a solid work ethic. That's super important, and I'm providing for my family. And you know what? I'm doing what I was built to do. And that's number three. Not number one. God's number one. So what is it? Where's your mind go? Yeah? Where do you dwell? All your thoughts. If we're going to catalog your thoughts, where do you worship? Because if all your thoughts are not about God, they're about something else. We're ripping God off. Half attempts at worship, right, because of selfish living, is nauseating to God. Treating Him with contempt, saying it doesn't matter, saying I'll give God whatever I have left over, or maybe I'll do it if I feel like it, that is not worship. Lance, you're being so hard on us. No, I'm not. I'm being hard on me. Why? Because I'm a pastor for crying out loud. 
And in this last 40 days, I'm only starting to see glimpses of getting my head back into the game in an appropriate fashion. Because I know that no matter how much I've been walking with God all my life, and yes, he captures a lot of my thoughts, I still have a lot of other places it goes. Right? This isn't about you. This is about us. And if you won't worship, if I won't worship, God will find someone who will. And he might have to bring up a new little kid to restore his name to dignity. How embarrassing would it be if God said in his heavenly courts, I'm getting nothing out of Bridgeway. The leadership is playing games. So I got to change. I got to go bring up a whole new leadership, young kids. Go wipe out all those guys, all those women, because they're a bunch of jokers. God, we have asked, pleaded, begged and prayed for him to restore worship in this house. I don't know how many of us are going to make that journey. But I pray all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, restore your name to its glory here. Change us as you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.